Part One, Chapter Nine of Faces in the Fire and Other Fancies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Devorah Allen. Faces in the Fire and Other Fancies by Frank W. Borum. Part One, Chapter Nine Shortcuts. We dearly love a shortcut. Even in childhood we resolved the discovery of shortcuts into a kind of juvenile science. There was the gap in the hedge, or the low part of a wall, by which we could pass, by means of a squeeze or a clamber, into the romantic territory of our next-door neighbor. With what fine scorn we inwardly derided the ridiculous behavior of our parents, when, in visiting that self-same neighbor, they marched with solemn mien out through the front gate, along the public highway, and in through the front gate of the house next door. It took them five mortal minutes to reach a spot that, by a stoop or a bound, we could have reached in as many seconds. Then there was the dusty track through the bush to the jetty, and the footpath across the fields to the church, and with what wild excitement we hailed a shortcut to school. When some adventurous spirit discovered that, by going up a certain right-of-way and climbing a certain fence, we could approach the school playground from a new and undreamed-of direction, our transports knew no bounds. It was not the lazy gratification of having invented a labor-saving device. It was the stately joy of the explorer. Half the romance of life was bound up with those shortcuts. The trysts of courtship were kept at the styles by which those surreptitious footways were intersected. The most delightful walks we ever enjoyed were the strolls along those uncharted bypaths. It may have been for the sake of brevity in a smart passage that they were first brought into existence, yet it was not to their brevity in the last resort that they owed their peculiar charm. The gap through the hedge, the clamor over the wall, the track through the bush to the jetty, the footpath across the fields to the church, and the right-of-way by which we took the school in the rear— these appealed to a certain deep human instinct that asserted itself within us, and, dissemblers as we were, we just made believe that we pursued these courses in order to conserve our energies and to save our time. And thus we got into the habit. Whether it was a good habit or a bad habit depends largely upon the realm to which we applied it. In my own case, it worked disastrously, at least at times. Since I left school, for instance, I have always been considered good at figures— Generally speaking, you have but to state your problem, and I can furnish you with the solution. In business, commercial, and ecclesiastical, this faculty has served me in excellent stead. But at school it was of very little use to me, and I find it of very little use when I undertake to coach my children, in anticipation of approaching examinations. For at school, the teacher not only propounded the problem and received my answer, he went another step. He asked me how I had arrived at that conclusion— and at that stage of the ordeal I invariably collapsed. He was there to teach me the rules, and I had as much contempt for the rules as I had for the route by which my grave and reverend parents made their way to our neighbor's door. I was content to squeeze through the gap, or to jump over the wall. The teacher was there to show me the road to the jetty. I scorned the road, and approached the jetty by the track through the bush. I could see no sense in either roads or rules if you could reach your destination more expeditiously without them. But, to pass abruptly from the microscopic to the magnificent, history furnishes me with quite a dramatic and most convincing demonstration of my point. In his Up from Slavery, M. 
Mr. Booker Washington illustrates this tendency again and again. The slaves were freed. But it is one thing to be free and quite another thing to be worthy of the rights of freemen. With one voice the black people cried out for education. This experience of a whole race going to school for the first time presents, said Mr. Washington, one of the most interesting studies that has ever occurred in connection with the development of any race. But many of the people were advanced in years. To begin at the beginning and attain to knowledge gradually seemed a tedious process. It was like the roundabout path from our front door to that of our next-door neighbor. The black people woke up late to the consciousness of their racial possibilities. And like most people who wake up late, they spent the morning of their freedom in a desperate hurry. Here is a young colored man, quote, sitting down in a one-room cabin with grease on his clothing, filth all around him, and weeds in the yard and garden, engaged in studying a French grammar, end quote. On another occasion, Mr. Washington, quote, had to take a student who had been studying cube root and banking and discount and explain to him that the wisest thing for him to do first was thoroughly to master the multiplication table, end quote. There is much more to the same effect. The black race made a frantic effort to run before it had learned to walk. I felt, says Mr. Booker Washington, that the conditions were a good deal like those of an old colored man during the days of slavery who wanted to learn how to play on the guitar. In his desire to take guitar lessons, he applied to one of his young masters to teach him, but the young man, not having much faith in the ability of the slave to master the guitar, sought to discourage him by saying, Uncle Jake, I will give you guitar lessons, but Jake, I will have to charge you three dollars for the first lesson, two dollars for the second lesson, and one dollar for the third lesson, but I will charge you only twenty-five cents for the last lesson. To which Uncle Jake answered, All right, boss. I hires you on dem terms, but boss, I want you to be sure and give me that last lesson first. Here we have the imposing spectacle, not by any means destitute of pathos, of an entire race seeking to reach its destiny by a shortcut. But it is a mistake. For that ebullition of juvenile depravity which disfigured my school days, I do now repent in dust and ashes. I was wrong. There can be no doubt about that. There is a place in this world for rules and roads as well as for gaps and tracks. I now know that my parents were right in approaching our neighbor's door by way of the public thoroughfare. Life has taught me, among other things, that shortcuts have their perils. It is the old story of the Gordian knot over again. The Phrygians, as everyone knows, were in grave perplexity and consulted the oracle. The oracle assured them that all their troubles would cease as soon as they chose for their king the first man they met driving in his chariot to the temple of Jupiter. Leaving the sacred building, they set out along the road and soon met Gordius, whom they accordingly elected king. Gordius drove on to the temple, to return thanks for his elevation, and to consecrate his chariot to the service of the gods. When the chariot stood in the temple courts, it was observed that the pole was fastened to the yoke by a knot of bark so artfully contrived that the ends could not be seen. The oracle then declared that whosoever should untie this Gordian knot should be ruler over Asia. Alexander the Great approached, but finding himself unable to untie the knot, he drew his sword and cut it. And the ancients said that it was because he had cut the knot instead of untying it that his dominion was so transitory and so brief. I fancy that if we look into it a little, we shall find that half our troubles arise from our bad habit of cutting the knots that we ought to patiently untie. 
take our politics by way of example. It is much more easy to sit back in our chairs and pour the vials of our criticism on the powers that be than to make any sensible contribution to the well-being of the state. A case in point occurs in Mark Rutherford's Clara Hopgood. Baruch and Dennis are discussing those old social problems that men have discussed since first this world began. Dennis was enlarging upon the inequalities and iniquities of social and industrial life when Baruch broke in with a pertinent and practical question, but what would you do for them? Ah, that beats me, replied Dennis. I would hang somebody, but I don't know who it ought to be. Precisely. To cut the knot with a sword is so easy and so ineffective. To untie it is so difficult and so rich in consequence. The politics that consist of sentencing to summary execution, statesmen from whom we differ, are within the intellectual reach of most of us. And in that particular brand of politics, therefore, most of us occasionally indulge. But the politics that consist in really grappling with the knotty problems, with a view to discovering some means of ameliorating human misery, provide us with a much more formidable task. Who has intellect sufficiently clear and fingers sufficiently deft to essay the untying of the Gordian knot? The empire of the world awaits the coming of that patient and persistent man. Or look at another example. I often feel that very little of the oratory expended on Protestant platforms really touches the mark. It gets nowhere. The real question at issue is most pitifully begged. It may, of course, be diplomatic to keep people well-informed concerning the social evils that thrive in Roman Catholic countries. It may perhaps be permissible to emphasize the abuses that exist within the pale of the Roman Catholic Church. But a devout and intelligent Roman Catholic, listening to such an utterance, would, after making a reasonable allowance for rhetorical exaggeration, admit the truth of all that has been said, and go home to weep, and perhaps to pray over it. Many of those who have passed over from Protestant communions to the Roman Catholic Church have traveled very widely and observed very closely. They are not ignorant. Newman sobbed over the seamy side of Romanism before he made the plunge. I have never disguised, he wrote, that there are actual circumstances in the Church of Rome which pain me much. We do not look toward Rome as believing that its communion is infallible. Then, with his eyes wide open to all the facts on which our orators dilate so luridly, he took the fatal step. And again he wrote, There is a divine life among us, clearly manifested in spite of all our disorders, which is as great a note of the church as any can be. Now what was that divine note? Everything hinges upon that. And unless our Protestant speakers are prepared to face that issue, they may as well remain by their own firesides, lounge in their coziest chairs, wear their warmest slippers, and enjoy the latest novels. It is only at this point that sincere and groping minds can be helpfully influenced. The whole question is one of authority. We dearly love a lord. There is no escaping that fundamental fact. Every day Protestant sheep stray into Roman Catholic pastures because there they can actually see the shepherd and actually feel his crook. The Roman Church, with its hoary traditions, its encrusted ritual, and its antique associations, crystallizes itself into a single voice. It possesses an enthroned incarnation. It has a pope. Romanism is like a pine tree. It towers to a pinnacle. All its branches converge upon the topmost bough. Protestantism is like a palm. Its summit consists of a great cluster of graceful fronds, 
but no one is uppermost. Romanism is the adoration of the topmost twig. In the person of the highest official, confused ears catch the accent of authority for which they hunger. Here they find the music of majesty, and they nestle their aching heads in the lap of a church that will sternly command their trustfulness and firmly insist upon implicit obedience. Thereafter they need think no more. In the midst of our difficulties, wrote Newman, I have one ground of hope, just one stay, but, as I think, a sufficient one. It serves me in the stead of all arguments whatever. It hardens me against criticism. It supports me if I begin to despond. And to it I ever come round. It is the decision of the Holy See. St. Peter has spoken. Here the weary brain finds rest. Here is the Gordian knot, so trying to the fingers, cut swiftly with a sword. Here is the discovery of a shortcut that may save the tired feet many a long and dreary trudge. The temptation meets us at every turn, and it is because that temptation is so general that it figures so prominently in the temptation in the wilderness. He was tempted in all points like as we are, and therefore he was tempted to take shortcuts. This is the essence of that weird and terrible story. It is notable that all the three things that Jesus was tempted to acquire were good things, things to be desired, things that he was destined to possess. But the whole point of the record is that he was tempted to make his way to the bread and the angels and the kingdoms by means of shortcuts. Now this is vastly significant. It is significant because, when you come to think of it, nearly all the things that we are tempted to acquire are good things. The temptation consists in the suggestion that we should possess ourselves of those good things prematurely or illicitly. We are urged to make shortcuts to our legitimate goal. Jesus was tempted to cut the Gordian knot, and to thus obtain an immediate but fleeting hold on the objects of his just desire. He rejected the proposal. He preferred patiently to untie the knot, and thus to make himself king of all kingdoms forever and ever. Of the perils attending shortcuts, John Bunyan is our chief expositor. Wherever a dangerous but alluring footpath breaks off from the high road, a statue of Mr. Worldly Wiseman ought to be erected. For it was Mr. Worldly Wiseman that first got the poor pilgrim into such sore trouble. Mr. Worldly Wiseman knew a shortcut to the celestial city. Christian took that shortcut, the footpath over the hills and through the village of morality, and dearly did he pay for his folly. And yet it is difficult to blame him, Poor Christian was heavily burdened, and every inch that could be saved was a consideration. Evangelist had clearly directed him, it is true, but then, if Mr. Worldly Wiseman knew a shortcut, why not take it? Let him who has no such burden as this poor pilgrim had cast the first stone at Christian. I cannot, says Dr. Alexander White. If one who looked like a gentleman came to me tonight and told me how I could on the spot get to a piece of conscience never to be lost again, and how I could get a heart to-night that would never any more plague and pollute me, I should be mightily tempted to forget what all my former teachers had told me, and try this new gospel. Exactly. The temptation to cut the Gordian knot is very alluring. The advice to get rich quick, or to get good quick, or to get there quick, is very acceptable. But by his story of the shortcut and the anguish that followed, Bunyan has taught us that the longest way round is often the shortest way home. There is sound sense in the song that bids us take time to be holy. The shortcut that avoids the wicked gate and the cross 
is merely a blind lane from which we shall return sooner or later with blistered feet and broken hearts. End of Part 1, Chapter 9